everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever. Good morning. I'm your host, Keith Dixon, and thanks for tuning in. The name of the program is Turn, 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 and the idea being that to every song, there is a season. The purpose of this hour is to play songs that embody the current season. It's summertime, and we'll be playing songs from Saturday Looks Good to Me, Faye Webster, and Everything But the Girl. But first, we'll be starting with a band that, to borrow a scenester or a pop kit phrase, was twee as fuck. Or at least they started out that way. Or, um, well, it's complicated. The field mice arose from humble beginnings, or at least in a musical sense they did, being that it was two guys, a drum machine, and a dream. Okay, well, maybe that last part is a bit of presumptive romanticism. But the band did originally comprise of Robert Ratton and Michael Hiscock of the South London suburb of Mitcham. Oh, and they had a drum machine. But to understand the full scope of this story, we must turn back the clock to the onset of punk rock. It must be remembered that one of the reasons that punk emerged in the mid-70s was as a form of protest against the perceived musical excesses that had begun to plague rock and music in general at that time. Punk ethos is rooted in the DIY ideology that anyone can pick up an instrument and express themselves in whatever manner they see fit. No longer did one need to play their instrument well or have a great singing voice. You could play shows, write songs, and independently release music as you pleased. But not everyone wanted to be a punk. So another genre of music branched off that bore the same spirit, but expressed it in a completely different manner. Today, labeling something as indie or indie pop can be an ill-fitting catch-all phrase for any number of genres or sounds. But back in the 80s and 90s, it was much easier to delineate. As writer Nitsa Abibi writes, quote, In indie, a lot of undramatic kids saw an opportunity to make music as themselves, for themselves. Regular middle-class white kids in plain clothes, not especially sexy, not exactly musically brilliant, and more often sad than angry. As the 1980s wore on, the music they made began to seem more and more like an outright celebration of those details, and a little bit of a raspberry blown at the larger musical world, which, sensibly, went right on performing something more interesting than average white kids playing simple pop songs. The charts had cool covered. These kids in their basements and bedrooms were trying to handcraft a mere image of it, a pop world where they were the stars, end quote. The Field Mice would release singles on the legendary independent label Sarah Records, but over time, indie music began to change. As Abibi put it, quote, the best analogy for Sarah's position, interestingly enough, comes from the 60s. If indie was the stylish music of choice for those student types, a bit like listening to the Beatles back in the 60s, then following Sarah was a little like listening to folk music. It was soft, idealistic, intimate, and supposedly made by people just like you. Its system of fanzines and singles was like some sort of private gift culture. When Bob Dylan went electric in 1965, folk purists complained that their boy was becoming just another pop group, destroying the intimacy of folk performances. And when, in the early 90s, certain Sarah bands started dabbling in dance and noise, the label's train spotters came out with the same complaints. 
that their scene, simple, pure, and private, was being ruined, end quote. Our featured song is from their last release, 1991's Four Keeps, and sees the band dabbling in shoegaze. This is Five Moments.
That was the funky and influential grooves of the Bronx-based sister group ESG with Six Pack. Up next, we'll be featuring a Boston-based band that went from being an SST-style hardcore punk act to having their frontman become a druggy alternative rock heartthrob and poster boy for Gen X. Evan Dando is the songwriter and frontman of the Lemonheads, a band that found fame in the wake of Nirvana's Nevermind. 
At the height of their success, he was the alternative rock it boy that would grace magazine covers and would be included on People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People list. He was also a, quote, notorious hedonist whose career was the very definition of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, end quote. For this piece, I thought I would share a wild story that I heard on an excellent podcast called Disgraceland. It involves Dando, Rick James, machine guns, and a riot. On April 29th, 1992, Dando was recording his breakthrough album, It's a Shame About Ray, with the Rob Brothers at their Cherokee Studios in Los Angeles. As Dando tells it, quote, During the LA riots, the Rob Brothers built barricades and had spotlights on the roof of their studio. They had all these guns, AKs and Uzis and stuff, and Rick, Super Freak James, was with them because he was recording there. All of a sudden, 10 cars pull up and like 100 guys get out and start looting the radio shack across the street. Then someone runs across the street and busts the window of the studio, so the Robs had to let loose with fire over their heads. After that, whenever anyone would pull up and get out of their car, Rick James would wait for just the right amount of time and yell, get the fuck out of here on the megaphone, end quote. So basically, Dando waited out the LA riots on a roof getting high with Rick James while firing automatic weapons into the air. It's safe to assume that that is one of the strangest rock and roll stories in existence. We won't be playing a song from the aforementioned record. Instead, we'll be playing a track that details an explicit sexual encounter from 1996's Car Button Cloth. This is If I Could Talk, I'd Tell You.
Best frequencies forever. Up next, we'll be featuring a song from a cosmic party album that changed the texture of rock music and will become one of the most celebrated releases of the 1990s. If Primal Scream's first two albums lived on different continents, their third album resided on a different planet. Their debut, 1987 Sonic Flower Groove, was a neo-psychedelic jangle pop record that channeled the birds, while 1989's eponymous second album leaned into a harder blues rock sound a la The Flaming Groovies. But their third album, 1991's Screamadelica, was a total reinvention of sound in general, as it was an alchemist brew of rock and roll fused with deep house hum, spacey dub, and the pulse of acid house that would soundtrack and fuel the burgeoning UK rave culture. While Primal Scream wasn't the first on the moon in regards to developing this sound, 
the Stone Roses would open the hatch and the Happy Mondays would take the leap. The Scottish band was the first to slingshot out of orbit to become lysergic voyagers of the inner astral web. The album's success was a culmination of several factors. First was frontman and songwriter Bobby Gillespie's encyclopedic knowledge of different genres and his use of their sounds, which many would dismiss as record collection rock. But as writer Tom Ewing pointed out, quote, Gillespie's approach is less bandwagon jumping and more a kind of aesthetic cosplay where his fanish intensity of identification works to overcome the limitations of technique, end quote. The second would be the clever use of producers. The band would bring in legendary Rolling Stones producer Jimmy Miller to record two of the more rock-oriented songs. But they would also bring in electronic psychonaut duo The Orb, Acid House DJ Andrew Weatherall, and remix was Hugo Nicholson. This new breed of producers would take elements of the band's recordings and songs and stitch them together to create, quote, an atmospheric and imaginative hybrid of past, present, and future, end quote and would capture, quote, its moment in vivid color and splendor, one that still radiates with a kaleidoscopic glow, end quote. Gillespie had this to say about our featured song. Quote, it's a spiritual song. It's me disconnecting myself from everything, but being totally in touch with myself. It's like sometimes you're on earth, but you feel separate from everybody else. You just want to rise above the everyday. I'm sure that when astronauts are up in space, they must get the impulse to just disconnect themselves from the ship and drift off into space and never come back. I could imagine feeling that. One of the ideas behind the song is this really crazy thought I had that because the prospect of people going into outer space has disappeared, we've got to explore inner space." End quote. This is Higher Than the Sun. Inside me, the listener's chance can open. 
Community Radio. All your friends are doing it. 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 Best frequencies forever. We'll be closing out the program with a tribute to a man that, since his passing on Tuesday at the age of 80, has been recognized as the heartbeat of rock and roll and the backbone of the greatest rock and roll band in the world. But not much more can be said about the great Charlie Watts that already hasn't been said in the press. He was the epitome of cool, a total gentleman, and a jazz drummer at heart that made the Rolling Stones music swing with swagger. As writer Stuart Berman put it, quote, Charlie Watts was the Rolling Stones' resident renaissance man, the impeccably styled, internally blasé timekeeper who never really shared his bandmates' voracious appetite for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, preferring monogamy, illustration, and jazz instead. To say he approached his 58-year tenure as the band's drummer like a job is no insult, but rather the highest of compliments. Like the pilot with whom you entrust your life whenever you board a flight, Watts was dedicated to making sure the stones always got where they needed to go, on time and with minimal turbulence, end quote. I thought I'd share one more story that has been making the rounds this last week. What follows is an excerpt from the Los Angeles Times. In his autobiography, Keith Richards recalled witnessing Watts throw his drummer's punch, a punch I've seen a couple of times, and it's lethal. It carries a lot of balance and timing. He has to be badly provoked. He threw this one at Mick. According to the memoir, Richards and Jagger, who weren't on great terms at the time, had just returned from a night out in Amsterdam to their hotel at about five in the morning, when Jagger picked up the phone to ring Watts. Despite Richards' protests, Jagger called Watts, asked, where's my drummer, then hung up when Watts didn't respond. About 20 minutes later, Richards wrote in his book, there was a knock at the door. There was Charlie Watts, Savile Row suit, perfectly dressed, tie, shaved, the whole fucking bit. I could smell the cologne. Richards continued, I opened the door and he didn't even look at me. He walked straight past me and got a hold of Mick and said, never call me your drummer again. Then he hauled him up by his lapels and gave him a right hook. As Richards remembers it, Watts struck Jagger so hard that the front man fell back onto a silver platter of smoked salmon on the table and began to slide towards the open window in the canal below it. Richards thought it was a good one, he wrote, until he realized Jagger was wearing his wedding jacket. I grabbed hold of it and caught Mick just before he slid into the Amsterdam Canal. It took me 24 hours after that to talk Charlie down. I thought I'd done it when I took him up to his room, but 12 hours later, he was saying, fuck it, I'm gonna go down and do it again. It takes a lot to wind that man up. R.I.P. to a legend. This is Do You Hear the Music?